We live in extremely precarious times. It does seem, doesn't it, that not a day goes by these days without a news flash that shots have been fired somewhere. It's another emotionally disturbed person, and there are casualties. We hear it constantly. It becomes increasingly clear that world governments use their citizens as political pawns on a platform for power and esteem human life to be almost nothing. We operate in a financial system that gathers the lifelong labor of hardworking and diligent people. And then through the flip of a switch or the trade that's made over a phone call, a life savings can just evaporate and vanish just like that. We see an entertainment industry that severs and perverts everything that's holy or sacred, the unraveling of the tapestry of what man was created to be. Just last week, there was in my house a missionary who just returned from Cambodia. And while he was there ministering to people starving, people that awaiting their rice harvest don't have food to eat to supply their daily needs. But yet, while they're in the midst of that, a shipment came in that provides free drugs on the government's tab for all of the people there, as much or whatever it is that they need. They can't get food, but they can get drugs. One night after he left my house, watching with my wife and with my kids a video that we Picked up while Ken Ham was here, Evolution versus God. Perhaps you had a chance to watch that. In a lot of the clips we saw while he shared with us the things that are going on in our world, but one that he didn't that struck us the deepest was the clip where each person interviewed would ask the question that if you came into the backyard and in your swimming pool you saw drowning there both your neighbor and your dog, which one would you save? And one after the next, without exception, every single person asked replied, their dog. We heard that and our hearts broke. And just this morning, I was talking with one of the pastors here at the church who, with his wife, just attended a seminar at John Jay High School right here in Dutchess County. Hearing that the heroin epidemic amongst the youth in Dutchess County is increased between three and five hundred percent. The amount of domestic calls, the amount of thefts and crime, it's, it's off the charts. It's through the roof. His son, the same man who is serving as an RA at a local college here, for his first term has, in just these first few months, had to deal with overdose, alcohol poisoning, and a young woman being raped by three men in his hall. And a man, 18 years old, 19 years old, has to give to parents the belongings of a girl whose life has been destroyed. You look at all these things that are going on, and you see how close to home it hits, and it causes you to ask the question, how did we get here? How did all of this come about? What kind of world are we living in? The answer to that question came to me, again, just a couple nights ago. Sitting on the floor with my two-year-old son, reading, again, Ken Ham's book, A is for Adam, and flipping the pages that so descriptively, poetically, and artistically described the fall of man and how Adam and Eve were tempted there in the garden. And I found myself reading to Riley and coming to a page and a certain illustration struck my eye. You'll see it up there on your screen. And thinking about all of these things happening, all the things that we've heard, all the things that we're hearing, I saw that illustration and and sitting there with my son, I felt my heart moved. and, And inside... 
I felt myself beginning to cry out, looking at Eve, staring at that fruit, saying to myself, No! <laughs> Don't do it! Don't do it! But then we flipped the page, and she did. And the answer began to come. Why are things the way they are? It's because of, well, it's because of sin. Could it really be that a single bite of a fruit so many thousands of years ago has led to one thing, to another thing, to another thing that has brought us to where we are today and we can trace all of what we see that's dark and evil and wicked back to that one thing that happened right then? I wonder if Eve, staring at that fruit for the first time, asked herself the question, what could possibly go wrong? And again, I wonder if Eve were in our world today, if she could see what we see and hear what we hear, I wonder if she would ask the question, is all of this really the byproduct of just one bite? Could one bite, one sin, one action turn out to all of this? Really? Is it possible? How does one bite from a fruit that's forbidden by God turn into everything that we see? Well, how does one toke or pull from a pipe lead to a young teenager who's now a full-grown man that weighs no more than 90 pounds? He has no more teeth. His mind is shot and his system is so destroyed that he can't hold down a half a sandwich. How does that happen? How does it happen that a single text message or a response to a friend request on a social network can lead to three broken homes, two dropouts, a teenage pregnancy, and a suicide? How is it that one backroom deal involving a crooked vote, a misleading description, and a fat envelope of cash could lead to the demise of an entire nation and the enslavement of its people? Or, as it is in our text tonight in Judges chapter 9, how could a small weekend fling in a foreign city result in a man having 70 of his sons brutally murdered, one by one, one having his skull crushed, a city destroyed, a thousand innocent lives lost, and an entire generation corrupted? The answer to all of the above scenarios is sin. That's how. Because that's what sin does. It comes in as something so innocent and so impotent, but once it gets in, it destroys absolutely and thoroughly, and it leaves nothing left in its wake. The New Testament book of James, chapter 1, sums up the sin process this way. And if you've turned there, I draw your attention to verse 13. James says to us, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He says that sin is the result of temptation mating with desire. That here comes a temptation, and when it finds a place within me that matches with the desire that that temptation offers, if I allow it in and allow those two things to meet together, that sin is birthed within my heart. It starts, the process begins. Now there's a huge air gap there because he describes the whole sin process as something that becomes full grown there in verse 15. He says, when it is full grown, sin brings forth death. 
And so the question remains, how does the conception of sin come to the completion of sin, which then brings forth death? What happens in that process? And there's a whole volume that's left out just in that summation of sin becoming full grown. But what happens? I'm thankful that the Bible's a picture book. That for every New Testament concept or principle, there's an Old Testament picture or story that illustrates what the New Testament principle teaches. And there's no greater picture of the sin process than, and, and how it so fully destroys than what we have here in Judges chapter 9 before us. And so this chapter, Judges 9, answers the question for us, is how, how does sin work once it's conceived? How does it go from conception to completion? And so I'd draw you back to Judges chapter 9 as we look at the story. But the question we ask before we jump into the text is what is the sin that we're dealing with? The sin was Gideon's. We saw it in the closing verses of chapter 8, verses 29 to 35. We saw that at some point, Gideon, in his time as the ruler, wandered into the city of Shechem, a foreign city to him. Now, what was Shechem known for? We'll find out in this chapter that Shechem was the capital of idolatry in the land at that time. It was where the temple of Baal Bareth was. It was a sensual, it was a sexual, it was a sinful place, and that's where Gideon found himself. And while he was there, he succumbed. He found a young woman, he did some things that were questionable, and she became his concubine. The context of the passage is clear. It wasn't his wife. The offspring of that relationship was illegitimate, not numbered amongst the sons of Gideon. And so the sin was Gideon's. It seemed innocent enough. It seemed justifiable for a ruler to do those things. But that sin, like all sin, had immediate results. There was something that happened right away from it. First of all, there was a devouring fire. A man by the name of Abimelech was born. A man who's going to cause great problems, as we'll see in our text tonight. Not just a devouring fire, but there was also a defamed reputation. The people didn't respect Gideon. So bad was his example to those he was ruling over that the moment he died, the rest of the nation turned to an idolatrous way of life and turned their backs on the living God with no respect or remembrance to him. It's been well said, and listen carefully, parents, that your children or those that are watching your life will only rise as high as your lowest standard. That means that the lowest standard that you have in your bracket of what you allow in your life, that your lowest standard will be the highest standard of those who watch you. The bar always gets lower through our compromises. It's also been well said that the secret sins of one generation become the open sins of the the, the latter. In other words, what our parents did that they were ashamed of and did in hiding their children now do out in the open. And that's always the way it goes. And that's what happened with Gideon because of his sin. He had a defamed reputation and it led to a darkened legacy. He was forgotten and he was despised amongst those that were his contemporaries. Now that's how the sin began, but it certainly isn't where the sin ends. The fire, the destruction of his sin will continue on through the generation of his son. So what does sin do as it grows from conception to completion? Now don't miss this, what I'm about to say, because if you do, you'll miss the whole study. None of it will make sense to you from here on out. And that's this. Is that what we see sin do through the life of Abimelech in Judges chapter 9 is the same thing that sin does when it gets into the life of a person, a believer, a church, a society, 
or a nation. Sin, just like a disease, once it gets in, it has a progression. It does things in a certain order, and it has a certain outcome and objective. And so as we see what sin did in Judges chapter 9 to Abimelech and to the people in that day, it's a picture, a parable, a manual for what sin does when we allow it in our lives, in our families, in our churches, or in our nation. So what does sin do? Three things, if you're taking notes here that we have in chapter 9. Number one is that when sin gets in, that is that desire mates with temptation in our lives And sin begins, the fire is started. The first thing that it does is that it disables the faculties of resistance. Notice with me in verse 1. It says, Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem, to his mother's brothers. So this is Abimelech now, the illegitimate offspring of Gideon. And he goes to his uncles, and he spoke with them, and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, so his grandfather's influence, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal reign over you? Or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah. So now he travels from Shechem down south about 30 or 40 miles to the area of uh, uh, Ophrah, where Gideon lived with his 70 sons. And it says that he killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbaal, On one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was at Shechem. And so we see the first thing that sin does now. We see, first of all, that a desire was birthed in the heart of this young man, Abimelech. He wanted power. He wanted to rule. He wanted authority. He wanted esteem and respect. He wanted the people to bow and to do his bidding, do his will. And that desire for power and that desire to rule mated, the temptation mated with something that was in him. And sin, a fire of sin, was birthed within his own heart. And then it did what sin does first. It short circuits the conscience. See, there's something inside when we do something wrong that says to us, you're not supposed to go that way. It isn't for you to do that. That's not your place. But if the sin is there, the sin always will overpower the conscience and find a way to justify its actions. And that's exactly what Abimelech does first. He goes to his uncle's, his grandfather's house, and he gives the only rational argument for his sin that he can. Hey, what's better? That a whole family, 70 of Gideon's son, try to hash this thing out? Who's going to be in control? We could eliminate all of that by just having me do it. Besides, that's probably God's will. I mean, there's only one of me, the illegitimate, and there's 70 of them. They'll never figure out who's going to do it. And so it just makes more sense for me to do it. And so he rationalizes something that was clearly not the will of God within his life. His justification, why 70? Then 
he did the next thing, which is to find those people that will condone or agree with the thing that you want to do. Isn't that what sin does in us? When we know we're walking in a way that we shouldn't, who do we get ourselves around? People that will oppose and object and question what we're doing, or people that will agree with it and see the sense in it, or perhaps they themselves are living that same way. And that's exactly what Abimelech does. He goes to the people that are going to agree with him and condone what he's doing. And it's amazing, their rationale. Their rationale has no sense at all. Well, he's our brother. He's obviously qualified to be king. We're related to him, you know. And there's no sense at all in in what they're agreeing to, but they go along with it anyway. Next, he's empowered by darkness. Seventy shekels of money from a pagan temple is given to Gideon to run his campaign and to establish his grip. That money is then used by these dark men to go and to kill 69 of the sons of Gideon. Every obstacle is now removed. Who's going to oppose Abimelech if he just carries on and gives his campaign? Well, the 70 sons of Gideon are going to oppose him. But not if they're dead. And so he hires these men, and he has every one of them lynched and removed. Now listen, this is what sin does in the life of the person, the child of God, or anyone else. Is that it comes in, and the first thing it does is that it removes every area of resistance. Everything that will be an opponent or an opposition of that sin that has the potential to root it out and get it out of the life and keep it from doing what it does must go. It has to be eliminated. It has to be removed. And so to ensure its own survival, it must disable all resistance. And that's exactly what we see Abimelech doing here, first of all. And that's what sin does in us. The next thing that sin does in our next chunk of verses, number two if you're taking notes, is that sin will reduce truth to a whisper. Notice with me, verse 7. It says, Now when they told Jotham, that's the youngest son who survived, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim. And he lifted his voice and he cried out and he said to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Why should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway over trees? Then the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, the thorns, the hedges, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. That's really good shade, isn't it? You ever take shade under a thorn bush? But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house and, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. The 
you know, the, the language there of saying his female servant, literally in the Hebrew, it's his sex slave. That's what Jotham calls the, the mother of Abimelech. And then in verse 19, if you then have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech. Now listen to this verse. I'm going to read it again, verse 20. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. The second thing that sin does is that it reduces truth to a whisper. Now, all 70 of Gideon's sons have been killed, with exception of the youngest, whose name was Jotham, who then goes and he stands upon Mount Gerizim, which is, overshadows the area, the village of Shechem there in the land of Israel. And he gives a message, first of all, to Abimelech. He speaks to the son of this illegitimate son of Gideon's concubine. And basically what he calls him is a worthless, useless, destructive fire that will destroy and then be destroyed. That's his word to Abimelech. Then he gives the point of his parable and he directs it at the men of Shechem. Here's what he basically says to the men of Shechem through this parable about the trees and the bramble bush. He says that man was created to be ruled by God alone. That's where he finds his purpose. He uses the fig tree, the vine, the olive oil, you know, the olive tree. And and that's the point of his message is that man's purpose was not to rule over other men. But the purpose of God creating men was to find his delight and his place in existence and serving God and being what God designed him to be. That's what God made man for. But when man refuses to submit his life to God and just wants to live for himself, then the result of that life that's lived in rebellion to God will be that he'll end up being ruled by useless men and destroyed. That's the message that Gideon gives to these men of Shechem. He says, hey, listen, if you want the bramble bush to come and rule over you, it's a sign of your rejection of God. You've refused to submit yourself to what he has for you, and the result of that is that you will be tyrannized. You're going to be oppressed by those whom you choose. They will be thorns in your sides, and they will be fire that devours you. That's the point of his parable. But there's also a prophecy tucked inside. What Jotham gives, this man who's telling truth in the name of the Lord from this mountain of Gerizim, he's saying to them that Abimelech will destroy, but then he himself will also be destroyed. But that's what's going to happen. That's what sin is going to do. It will destroy but then it will be destroyed. That's the testimony that Jotham gives. His word, his truth that he declares to these people in this situation is that your sin is going to destroy you and then it will be destroyed. That's what sin does. It's a testimony of truth. However, it's a small voice, isn't it? Hey, there's only one son of Gideon that's alive at this point who's giving them this message, who's telling them this truth. They cannot snuff out the voice of truth. You can remove every opponent, every, everything that will oppose what you want to do, the sin that's existing within you, but you cannot eliminate the truth. Why? Because it's eternal. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, he said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You can't silence the testimony of God's truth. 
Jesus said, my heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. You can't silence the truth of Scripture. You can't eliminate it, but what you can do is you can marginalize it. And you can make it so obsolete and archaic in the thinking of the masses of people that it's easy to ignore. And that's exactly what happens here. See, the men of Shechem and the man of Bimelech are on a course. He wants to rule, and they would have him to rule. Now, this one man, Jotham, stands on Mount Gerizim. He gives testimony concerning what will be the outcome of that decision. You're going to be destroyed. But he's just one man. He's just one voice. And how could one voice be right when all of us think that he's wrong? That's what happens, isn't it? Isn't that what we do when we want to justify our truth, our own sin? We say, hey, the whole world agrees with me. And nobody agrees with God. That's what we do. And we put truth on the back burner in favor of what we want to do in just following our will. That's what people do today. In John chapter 3, verse 16 and onward, Jesus said this. Now, you all know this verse. It's a famous verse, but I want you to listen to the verses that come after it. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is that condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Jesus said that the heart of all condemnation will be that men love darkness. And so in that darkness, they refuse to come to the light, the truth that will expose their darkness for what it is. That's exactly what men do. Paul said it this way to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That the attitude of sinful men and of sin itself is to suppress the testimony or the voice of truth. To marginalize it, to make it irrelevant, to make it small. And if I can silence the voice of truth, then it gives free course for my sin to do what it wants and do as it pleases. In verse 25 of the same chapter, Paul speaks of those that gave in to sin, and he says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. He said they would rather serve falseness than come to truth, and so therefore they suppress the truth so that they can continue in unrighteousness. That's what sin does. It eliminates the testimony of truth. This is why people hate the Bible. Did you know that? Why is there a war on the Bible? Why is it that people can talk about the Koran, or they can talk about Buddhism, or they can talk about you know, Eastern religions or meditations, or, 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 or any form of spiritism that they want to, but if you bring up the Bible, or you talk about Jesus Christ, the hair stands up on the back of people's neck, and they get offended, and they hate you, and they'll kill you. Why? Because it's the testimony of truth. And truth is light, and light exposes darkness, and men love darkness because their deeds are evil. And it's interesting that this man, 
speaks truth. Now, this can happen in the individual. It can happen in a nation. It can happen in any way. The truth is suppressed. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's standing on Mount Gerizim. Do you know what Mount Gerizim was? It was the place where, when they first came into the land, the Levites would stand and pronounce blessing upon the people of God if they would obey his ways. Remember? From Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses said, when you come in, make sure you do this. And in Joshua chapter 8, they did it. They stood on Mount Gerizim. They made an, a, 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 you know, a monument that had the law written on it, and then they pronounced the blessing of God for those that would obey. And that's the very place that Jotham is speaking this testimony to the men of Shechem. Listen, turn to God. Don't turn to useless and vile men and suppress the truth. But that's what sin does. It reduces truth to a whisper. And then number three that sin does is that sin always, without exception, turns on the sinner. Notice in verse 22. It says, After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So a conspiracy rises, and they begin to go behind his back. Division begins. That the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided him in killing his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, And they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told Abimelech. So these guys become rebels. They start robbing people. They increase crime, and Abimelech catches word of it. Now, verse 26, Gael, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. So this new man is introduced into the story, Gael, and he comes with his family. And it says that the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and they gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and they made merry. They start a party. And they went into the house of their God, lowercase g, and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. And so the battle lines are being drawn. Gael and the men of Shechem against Abimelech and his general Zebal and their men. And when Zebal, verse 30, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, take note. Gael, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are, fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city, and when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. So, here, Zebal encourages Abimelech to... Get this guy into a battle. So, verse 34, Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. And when Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebal, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebal said to him, 
you see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. Now, remember, Zebul is the one who is orchestrating the men that are in the mountains. Gael is the enemy, and he says to Zebul, he says, look, the mountains are moving. And, you know, Zebul, wanting to take attention off of that, you know, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain type of thing, he says, no, no, you're, you're having visions. You know, you see shadows of mountains as if they were men. So, verse 37, Gael spoke again and said, see, the people are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zebul, who, remember, it's Abimelech's general, said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now, with which you said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So now Zebul says, Yeah, you're right. They are coming, and you better prepare, because you're going to have to defend yourself. So verse 39, so Gael went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him. So Gael loses. The men of Shechem, who have treacherously abandoned Abimelech and given their allegiance to Gael, they lose the battle, and Abimelech overcomes them. And it says that many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Aruma, and Zebul his general, drove out Gale and his brothers, and they would not dwell in Shechem. And it came, on, it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city, that's Shechem, that's the city that he wanted to rule over, and he sowed it with salt. Now, when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that. They entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Bereth. So they run to their idols for protection. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bow from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, what you've seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech. Put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and he encamped against Thebes and took it. And there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women, all uh, the city, the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up on top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. So his young man thrust him through, and he died. 
And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil men of of Shechem, God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. First thing that we see in this quite lengthy portion of scripture that we just read is that three years passed and there was no consequence for Abimelech's sin. Sin always does that. Is that it doesn't come back and bite you right away. You think, you know, I've gotten away with this. God must actually be in it. He really doesn't mind if I do it because I've been going on now for these years and I've been continuing in this particular sin and there's really been no problem. I've been able to eliminate all of the voices of condemnation. I've been able to get rid of all opposition and everyone who would tell me that I can't. And I've basically dug in my heels and this is where I'm living my life now. And you know what? God was wrong. The wages of sin isn't death. I'm doing it. I'm getting away with it. And it's working out just fine. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 25, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. Now, we don't stand here, we don't, as Christians, carry the testimony that sin is not pleasurable. We know that it is. We know that it allures and and entices our flesh and that there is a certain pleasure in doing things that are destructive to us or that God says that we can't. Because of our sinful nature, we're drawn to sin. And sin is pleasurable for a season. But there's a law that God gives that you cannot get around. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, and you can remember that because it's 3223. Numbers 3223. He says, Be sure and know this, that your sin will find you out. That sin has a destructive nature. It has one objective and one agenda, and that is to destroy your life. And it will not stop pursuing until it does. And you can run. You can have years where it doesn't affect you. You can say that the effects of this are not what the Bible asserts that they are, but eventually, I guarantee you, as much as I guarantee you that if you jump up, you will come back down, that if you sin against the Lord, or a nation sins against the Lord, or a church sins against the Lord, know that that sin will come back and it will haunt you. And what will it do? There's another law. It's Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says that the wages of sin is what? That's right. You don't have to put it up yet. No. See the thing flipping like crazy there. We'll get back to that verse in a little while. What we see here is that the prophecy that Jotham gave concerning the men of Shechem and the man of Imelech came to pass exactly as he said. He told the men of Shechem that if you want the bramble to rule over you, he will, but he's going to burn you up in the process. You're going to get burned and you're going to get destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. Abimelech turned on them, he destroyed their city, and he killed a thousand of its citizens. But then they also turned on him. The second part of Abimelech's parable was that Abim, I'm sorry, Jotham's parable was that Abimelech himself would be destroyed. And we saw that that w- 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 took place. That a woman dropped an upper millstone upon his head and it crushed his skull and that he was destroyed. You can't win in your desire to run against God or to sin against God. Sin is ultimately going to win and destroy you. And there's no exception. Sin only does one thing, and that is that it destroys. And so we see it. We see it here in this chapter. It's illustrated so clearly what sin does. It wipes out all resistance and opposition. It reduces truth to a whisper, and then it will turn on you and destroy you. 
you say, this is a great study, very uplifting, very positive. But it leaves a few questions to be asked, a few things, a few things I want to ask is, sin is so destructive. And not just the sin that we see in this chapter and what it did in Israel then, but the sin that's all around us that we're experiencing, that we're walking in. If it's so bad, then why? Why didn't God just intervene when Eve was going to take that fruit? Or why did God put that tree in the Garden of Eden in the first place? Why didn't he just stop it from happening? Because we know, we agree, it's bad. Well, the answer is that he did intervene. He just didn't do it in a way that we would think or expect. See, God wanted man to learn a couple of things. First of all, God needed man to know that we were created not to live independent of him. That man cannot live independent of a relationship with the true and the living God. We were made to be in fellowship with him. He made us for that purpose. Now, the statement that Adam and Eve made in the garden when they partook of that fruit is that they said, God, we don't need you. We can handle the knowledge of good and evil. We can govern ourselves and we can be autonomous. We can do this apart from you. That was the statement that they made. And God said, okay. And thus, what we've seen taking place in the world for the past 6,000 years since that time is we've seen man trying to govern and rule himself independent of the God who made the man. And the result of that is that man has failed miserably. And God will stand back and he will let things continue to play out their course until every system of man has failed. Because there is no system that man can ever contrive that will work and allow him to operate apart from God. And so God must let it happen that we might learn that we cannot operate independent of him. The other thing that God wanted us to learn is this, is that God is love. The Bible says that God is perfect love. That he's unconditional agape love. And he needed man to know that. That was his intent from the beginning. Let's say for a minute that there was no sin. That there was no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that Eve didn't sin. Or that God intervened and said, Eve, please don't do that. And she said, oh yeah, you're right. You know, like we do. Like, you know, I I do as a dad. When I see my kids about to do something that they shouldn't do. And and I give them the warning. I say, are you sure you want to do that? And they look at me and they go, oh yeah, no. No, I don't want to do it, you know. If God had done that to Eve and she didn't sin and that tree was still there and there was a big fence around it, here would be the result of that. Sure, we wouldn't have the destruction, the ruin, the chaos that we have in the world right now. And we would know God's love because God's love is revealed in creation. And it's also revealed in life. And it's revealed in his providence, his provision, and the goodness that he gives us. All of those things reveal the love of God. But they don't reveal the love of God in the depths that that love goes. The Bible says that God demonstrated the depths of his love in that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The only way that God could reveal the depths of his love to a fallen creation was to reach into that fallen, broken filth of what man would become and to grab man out of it bear the punishment and penalty of that filth upon himself, upon a cross, and invite man into a relationship with himself. And it was in that that God desired and designed that he would reveal his love to his creation. And it was the only way. The love of God was never known in all of eternity past in the depths of what it was until God's Son hung upon a cross and demonstrated it through the shedding of his blood. And that was God's plan A from the very beginning. He knew 
when Eve took that bite, everything that it would cause and then everything that he would do to redeem man from that cause, from that sin. And God loves. He continues to love. But when we see the world as it is, we ask the question, we say, Lord, how could you let this continue? When we hear about what's going on in third world countries, when we see the wreckage and the chaos, when we hear about genocide, and you know, we say, Lord, how long can you let this continue? And the answer to that question you know, is kind of a, a question mark, and I don't know. I, I don't know. We don't know how long it can continue. You know, we, Georgia and I, when we were watching, you know, about people saying that they would save their dog and not their neighbor. You know, that was our question. We said, Lord, how, how could you let this continue? Why don't you just come back, end this? I mean, it, it's enough. We realize it. We see it. And the only conclusion that you can come to when you think about those things is that if God is willing to let these things continue and let things continue to get worse, then how bad is hell? Because if he would wait because of a few people that have yet to get saved, then how bad is it to be separated him from all eternity? And he doesn't want that. The Bible says that he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God needed man to recognize his love. Second question, it leaves us at the end of the study, is that is there an escape from sin's destructive grip? Can you get out of it? I mean, if sin has infected, can it be stopped? Can that process be you know, interrupted? And the answer is yes. Because it's true that, yes, your sin's going to find you out. And it's true that the wages of sin is death. That you, If you sin, the soul that sins will surely die. But that's not the end of the verse. The second half of Romans 6.23, where it says the wages of sin is death, is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is that God made provision for the sin process to be interrupted and stopped. When Jesus lived a sinless life, he broke the power of sin. And he could do two things with that. He could either use his sinless life to condemn a sinful world, or he could use it to invite a sinful world into a relationship with himself. And that's what he elected to do. He died not to condemn, but to purchase a righteousness that can be imputed to someone else. See, he lived a perfect life, but he died the death of a sinner when he hung upon the cross. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And what Jesus did is by rising again, he took that perfect life and he offered to give it to whosoever would call upon him. That was God's solution. And when you accept him, when you come into that relationship with him, you're set free from the law of sin and death. See, Romans 6.23 gives us the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is that if you sin, you will die. That's the outcome, the end of sin. It will destroy you completely. But there's more to the story because in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says this, the best words in all the Bible. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Walk not according to the flesh or the old life, but according to the Spirit. Here it is, verse 2. He says, For the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Thus the Bible declares that the sin process can be interrupted. That when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, now listen, just as sin has a process, right? It comes in, it disables our resistance, it reduces truth to a whisper, it turns on us and destroys us. 
Sin has a process, but so also does life. See, when you let life in and you receive Christ and His Spirit comes into your life, there's a process that begins. He begins to renew. He begins to teach. He begins to grow you up in Him. He begins to teach us how to hear His voice, how to follow His will, how to discover what He made us for. He brings us to the point of almost destruction to the point where He says, this is abundant life. And it's a process as His life comes into us and, 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 and helps us and we're set free. It's a great, glorious truth. As we close, and, and the musicians can come, it's interesting, in, in these days, like the early winter days, I don't know about you, you hear the sniffles, you hear the coughs, you, 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 know, you, you hear about the people that you know, are calling in sick, they're not around, they're not well. What do we do? We fortify, right? We, you know, vitamin C, we, we, we make sure we get sleep. We're, we don't drink out of the same bottle. I don't eat the, the leftover food off my kid's plate, you know. <laughs> because, because why? Because we know that this is the season when sickness is rampant. So church, let me exhort you and encourage you. In these days that we live in where sin is rampant, where it's destructive, then how much more do we need to fortify ourselves and be prepared that there's an attack there's a desire. There's a plan being drawn up in the boardroom of hell that would seek to take you out and destroy your life. And it happens with something so seemingly innocent. These days, church, more than ever, we need to be people that are in the Word of God. People that are close to the Lord. Following His ways. Listening to His Spirit. Doing His will. Aware of what's going on around us. Because the stakes are high. I, I, I'm in the Word constantly. I mean, it's, it's my job, basically, to like be in the Spirit and be in the Word. And I know how hard it is for me. And how much more, like for someone who is fighting for those minutes to spend with God. It's so important in these days that we uh, live in. We must stand our guard against sin. So here's my prayer for you tonight as we close. Is that the next time you're faced with something that seems so innocent, that you look at it and you say, what, what harm could it possibly do? To just, you know, I know I don't really need it, but I'm just going to take a pill, you know, just because it might take the edge off a little bit. The next time maybe you're sitting in front of a screen or flipping through a magazine in your idle time. Maybe the next time that anger is rising up inside of you and you feel that it wants to come out. You wouldn't ask the question and say, well, hey, what harm is it going to do? What, what really bad could come from this? But that you would realize that sin is lying at the door. And it would do anything to get in. And once it gets in, it wants to destroy you. And this so easily becomes that. It's just a bite. But it will destroy thoroughly. May God give us wisdom. Father, we just thank you so much that as we consider the times that we live in and as we realize the stakes are high, we would ask that tonight, Lord, your Holy Spirit would give us a fresh filling. You'd give us fresh insight and fresh wisdom. Please help us, Lord, to see these things clearly that you've laid out for us and that we might not be overthrown and overcome, but that we might stand victorious and that we wouldn't be ashamed before you at your coming, but that we'd be ready and that we'd be counted worthy to escape the things that are coming upon the earth. So be with your church, Father. Lift our heads and fill our hearts. and Let us know, Lord, that our redemption draws near. Thank you for this word tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.